The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to Z-Pod. An Outreach Ministry of Identity Matters podcast. ZPON is focused on addressing the worldview issues relating to the millennial generation and their children, Generation Z. Our new podcast series reveals the importance of the indwelt believer knowing and understanding who they are in Christ. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to ZPON with Dr. Stephen Finney. Welcome to Z-Pod. We are so glad that you are joining us tonight. We've been in the middle of a series. In fact, it comes under the branch of our Ministry of Generational Ethics. And we're calling it the Gen Z series. And this series is dedicated for the entire year of 2018. So those of you who are just joining our podcast, just keep in mind that you can just keep tracking these messages once a week by simply logging on to our website at www.iomamerica and you'll see all the drop-downs necessary to log on to the Z-Podcast and hear all these messages. Tonight's message, of course, is focused on Gen Z. you got to go to the core of the Word of God that has been traditional and working in society since Jesus Christ. The third worldview is the born-again Zers. Now under number two, we have 3% of these Zers who are saying, I'm a Christ follower in my worldview. These are the youth group kids who are going in and getting all rocked out and enjoying a couple verses thrown at them and whatever, but they're not being trained and equipped in how to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which offered us the pathway to be born again, as Jesus called it, and delivered and made a brand new person. They go away with a Christ-following worldview. And if you approach them and said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? They might even laugh at you. Of course I do. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? (laughs) Of course I do. Do you believe he was put in the tomb? Well, yeah. Do you believe that he was resurrected? Yeah. How about this one, Junior? Do you believe that you were crucified with Christ? What? What are you talking about? Well, I mean, in the Bible, there's several passages where it says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who gave himself up for me. Do you believe that? Well, I've never heard that before. I got a nasty email from one of my theologians that's constantly sticking it to me over the issue. And get this, this is a theologian. I got a handful of them that stay in touch with me. And he says, you're really bordering on sinless perfection. Because you're saying that the old man has been removed. Yeah. No. He was crucified. He gets crucified and he dies. Romans 6.6 says the old self has been crucified and it died 
and it was put on the cross and left on the cross. You see what happens to someone who does not have a Christ as life worldview? They methodically dice Jesus Christ and his words like he's some kind of craft project. Keep sending me the emails. I deeply appreciate it. Now we have our last worldview, and that's the born-again Christ as life worldview, people. Now in the Z generation, we're down to what percent? One percent. Guys, if numbers could speak to you at all, just keep in mind the entire Bible is built on numbers. The English language is built on numbers. A is one, B is two, C is three. The Hebrew has little numbers by every single Hebrew letter. It is the same. Language is built numerically. Now, in knowing that numbers should speak to you, 1% of this generation is saying, I believe in separating followers from born-again believers in worldview. Well, as a teacher... I have to look at that number and go, 1% are the only ones that actually understand what I'm talking about? 1%? Now the Christ followers, that 3% is going to be kind of like, man, that's interesting stuff. And then 96 are going to go, this guy is crazy. As I said to Paul, I speak as if I'm insane. There were mysterious truths to followers. There were reactionary truths to the unsaved. But to those who had ears to listen, they go, something is being taught here that is deeper than life itself. This diagram that you are looking at and these statistics are going to be the foundational visual teaching tools we're going to use throughout the rest of the year. This is how I pin people down online. is by sending them these three worldviews, and I want them to pigeonhole themselves in one of them. Guess which one gets avoided almost all the time? Number three, guess who seems to flock around a certain worldview? As you'll learn at the conference, 76% of every single American in the United States says they're in number two. American equals Christian. That's a bad, bad deception. Here's what the Word of God has to say about these problematic worldviews. Outside of the fact of number three worldview being most sincere and accurate with the Word of God, it says in Galatians chapter 5, Verse 10 through 13, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you, you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Paul was dealing with the whole issue of the law. And whether it is still true for the indwell believers at that time. Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished, if that was the case. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves 
which is interesting in the Greek, it's basically get punished themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom or turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. When I encounter someone who is resistant, but they're very engaged in dialogue, that is most exciting to me. Because they are actually using their resistance as pride. They're afraid to just come out and say, I have no clue what you're talking about. Could you please explain it to me? They go the route of pride and they do a thing called debate. Well, I know all of that. So it can be used for the advantage of the gospel, like Paul was known for doing. The key here is loving. Let the love of God be released through you to these oppressors, to these people that should be self-punished. That's Paul's desire going, I wish that would happen to them. But that is not what he was recommending. What he was recommending is not to use our freedom in any other format than what Jesus Christ uses that freedom for. And that is to reach another person. No matter if they're a Roman, an intellectual Or if they're a Laodicean when they think they're God's choice to mankind and they're going to hell. You see, to Paul, his worldview dominated over every person that he talked to. And if your worldview is not dominating everything you're doing, everything you're saying, You are participating in problematic ethics. You are deluding and confusing the people that are watching you. Why would they come and ask you an intelligent question? When most Christians, Christ followers, cannot even box their way out of a paper bag. They fumble around with their words. They're not quite sure where to take someone. We're going to be doing some skits a few weeks down the road. And I'm going to play the the relative thinker. And I'm going to have each of you, that volunteer, handle some questions I'm going to throw at you. I want to train you to to get beyond Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay, I learned that in preschool. You need to be able to dialogue with this generation. They are relative. If not, you're going to become passive. And passivity is rebellion and camouflage. Here's our quick review from last week. Looking at ethics one more time. Three modalities. Meta-ethics is concerning the theoretical meaning in reference of moral proposition. Yes, I separate that on purpose. And how their truth values, if there are any, can be determined. Normative ethics is concerning the practical means of determining a moral course of action. So you have your meta-ethic. Now you're determining the course of action. And then applied ethics is actually acting upon it. That's why it's very methodical. And that's why people who are involved in proper ethics are thinking in these modalities. 
And if you're not able to just do the basics of this, you will have to disengage. They'll trap you. Smart people can easily trap untrained Christians. Easily. And if they walk away with a sense of victory, it reinforces what they were trying to tell you. Now here is the godological ethics. Meta-ethics concerning the theological meaning and reference of biblical propositions in Christ and how his truth mandates are determined through the absolute word of God. Normative ethics for God is concerning the practical means of determining his, Jesus' indwelling course of action in and through the born-again believer. It's not an external ethic. It's an internal. It's inside the mind of Christ because he's getting his orders likewise. His father. There's no original thought here going on with Steve Finney. It is either from the mind of Christ or it's from humanness. There's no third category. None. There are two, realistically, two universal worldviews. That is of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that of his enemy. And his name is Satan. And you shouldn't be afraid to use that name. Because that too is being diluted. Finally, God's applied ethics are concerning Christ's obligation to live out specific situations or actions in and through his bride. Who's his bride? It's us. It's every other born-again believer out there, no matter what country you're in, no matter where you live, how much persecution you're dealing with, if you have your story and experience of receiving Jesus Christ into your life, you are considered the bride of Christ. Revelations chapter 21. There's the Godological ethics and their modality of functioning within you as a believer. Here's a couple statistics I'm going to quickly take you through. This is a survey that comes from Barnard Group in 2018. The question that was asked is, is moral truth absolute or is it relative? Now, it sounds like there's a little bit of a twist and spin coming on this question. It's because there is. You see, moral truth can be relative. Moral truth can be absolute. But when moral truth is relative, it has to be self-interpreted by the person with the worldview. When moral truth is absolute... It has to cling to one basic, simple reality. What is this? Will this ever not be a clock? This is a clock. It's never going to be a tennis racket. Your interpretation, Ian, of this clock does not matter to me. If you can say it's a plastic device or whatever your self-interpreted interpretation is of this, matters not to me. There's no discussion coming from me whether this is a clock or a shoe. There's not going to be a discussion. If you say it's a shoe when I know it's a clock and it's an absolute clock, then I know a discussion with you is throwing pearls before swine. You enjoy arguing. That's all you have to do coming out of the chute. What 
is absolute. Absolutes never change. They never change. A tree is always a tree. A tree is never a potato. Apples are apples and oranges are oranges. The very illustrations I use in ethics classes. But it doesn't work anymore. Because if a generational young person says, well, I believe that's just a plastic device. And if I refute that, I'm intolerant. And the one who clings to the fact that this is a clock and will always be a clock, and this clock, I'm going to go one step further, and I want to tell you something about this clock. It's the only thing in humanity that you can't manipulate. Clock. The only thing. They're trying. And they've found these black holes in space and blah, 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 and the CERN machine or whatever it is that they're working on with time warping. As my dad said to me many years ago, when we would have discussions like this, he said, I can assure you, Christ will come back the day they discover it. Because no one controls time except for God. It's where his secrets are hidden. That's absolute truth. Relative truth is a self-governed perspective of what they're seeing or hearing. So is moral truth absolute or relative? Well, 65% are intolerant today amongst all adults in America. 65% are intolerant of absolute truth. So when they say to you, how can you tell me what's absolute truth versus what is not absolute truth? Pick up the clock. Is this a clock? Because they're not going to listen to you if you throw something out because Jesus said so. It doesn't work anymore. The only time that that works is when the church has a controlling influence on society. We do not anymore. You could say back in the 1960s, but the Bible says, and people would would crumble a bit. Today you say, well, the Bible says, and they say, well, it's proof, scientific proof that that's just written by mere men. Two denominations last month made a political, within their church, decision to no longer use any of the books in the Bible except for the Gospels. Because of this very reason. You don't think it's not infecting the church? It already has. The human interaction effect is the idea that we grow to like and be like people around us. When we hang out on a regular basis with fellow indwell believers who prioritize living out the life of Christ, we're more likely to do the same. Humans exemplify the behaviors of those they associate. Now this really drives the relative generation crazy. Because that's the thing they use as their logic to say why they're going to be their own person. Why they're going to be individualistic, which is their leading buzzword. Here's the problem with this way of thinking. What forms their worldview, relative worldview, is their peers. Their haircuts, their clothes, their jewelry, their tattoos, 
This is what formed their relative worldview. And some are more apt to listen to you when you nail them down on that one. Where'd you get your hairstyle? I'm just curious. Why do you wear bell bottoms? Did you borrow that from another human? Are you being like that person? Why do we have so many subcultures in our country today? You know, back in my day, it was headbangers. It was, you know, hippies. It was, you know, we have all these subcultures within our primary culture because we all want to be different. There's no difference in this. That is their greatest deception. Indwell Christians want to be like Jesus Christ. Now we can do that by Christ following or do that by releasing Christ within us. That is the objective, to look in the mirror and go, I see Jesus. Is it not? That's what they're reacting to. We're puppets to them. And I'm more than willing to be one. But they don't realize they themselves are. It's no wonder the writer of Hebrews was so adamant about the importance of regular church attendance. Let's take a look at that here real quick. This is out of Hebrews 10, 23 and 20 through 25. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised it's faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The term drawing near is a prophetic statement. He is speaking of the the day of the Lord, the very final day. This day that the writers in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament are talking about, about this day that's drawing near, it's this final day that's coming. And he's saying, if you really want to make it to the end, because the verse does say, those who endure to the end shall be saved. Endurance seems to be a big deal about enduring all the way to the day. He is telling us one of the key pieces here is not forsaking the gathering together as a fellowship, which is why we meet. It's just that I'm not interested in just downloading some Bible data to you because it's not the Bible that changes you. That's called the external following Christ problematic ethics. The Bible does not change you. Jesus Christ does, who is the word that came to dwell among us so we could behold his glory. When he became a part of us, to live inside of us, that word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide the soul from the spirit, the joint from the marrow, and able to judge every thought and intention of the heart. We haven't even cracked open our Bible yet. Keep in mind there are 36% of the humans walking the face of the earth today that have never touched a Bible. So how in the world could they get their lives changed if they don't have a Bible? The external Bible is a verification and bearing witness with the Word of God in you. Both are needed. Neither one should be abolished, of course. Another quick statistic here. The competition between facts is certainly not new. It's been around for many generations. But it is very unique in our particular generation today. 
In fact, it's very influential. The old gatekeepers of truth are no longer the only ones who publicly interpret facts. Now, through the Internet, everyone feels empowered to do so. That's why the Internet works. This phenomenon diluted the authoritative influence of teachers and pastors, resulting in truth-sayers being false teachers. There's a twist coming to the church. Listener, listen very carefully. Many of you denominational churches have been harming other churches, non-denominational or denominational, putting them all into one particular category and saying the Methodists are all going to go to hell. The Baptists are all going to go to hell if they don't baptize their people. Or the We have come up with some very strange things. Instead of focusing on are they born-again believers or not? My wife and I have been reading a book together from a Catholic man. And we don't even question whether he was, he's a born-again Catholic. There's a born-again movement in the Catholic Church. See, it isn't about the subculture. It's about the people within those subcultures or denominations. Now, since we have done this to other churches and continue to do this to the other churches, there's one thing that they're not taking a look at when you look 15 years down the road from a pluralistic church. It's going to backfire on you. You're going to be one of the false teachers. You'll be one of the ones that are avoided. So you're either going to have to become a full-on pluralistic church, post-truth church, or something is going to have to change. It will not be very long, not too far down the road, when we're not going to be making a big deal about what buildings look like or the crosses that are dangling from the top of the roofs. We won't be firing pastors over color of carpet anymore. We're going to be clinging to each other if we are believers in and through Christ. That is what it's being reduced down, that God is separating the goats from the sheep. You will cling to true on body members of Christ. No matter what they call themselves, put the little stickers on their shirts. That's not universal thinking. It is reality thinking. It's a healthy worldview. This is all about God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Bride of Christ. So I ask you the question, listener, are you a bridal member of Jesus Christ? Don't send me your doctrines, which is what I usually get. That usually comes out of your books from your seminaries. Are you or are you not a bridal member of Jesus Christ? That I will discuss with you. Then we'll talk about your subcategories of debate. Everything must start from your worldview. But see, we're losing our potency here. Pastors are down to 14% of where people go to get credible news source, biblically or otherwise. Educators are down to 12. Who's the primary teacher for this generation? Google. Google. The Internet. Here's another statistic. This statistic is showing us that 64% of the adults in America do not trust the church in regard to being healthy authorities. There are people within our little body here that I have had to disciple you out of this anti-authority modality that you've been living by since your teen years. 
Now, I am very much aware that the percentage is so small that people actually, body members in Christ, are actually attracted to tuning in to preachers who are going to kick your rumpus. You see, who are going to address your flesh, who are going to deal with your lies, instead of the goal being, which is number one surveyed, which is our next series we're doing in 2019, and that is a full year series on the church and their pastors. Survey, we're already reviewing the statistics for it. So I'm on two tracks as I go through 2018. But the statistics are already available that the number one thing that pastors want their people to have when they walk out that door is to feel encouraged, lifted up, and better. That is not my goal for you folks. It never will be. It's the Spirit's job to lift you up. Now, there are many times, hopefully, that you do hear a message and you are encouraged and lifted up by it. But see, that's not my job. My job is to deliver a message of truth which is giving you courage. That's where the word encourage comes from, imparting courage. I'm like a Paul that says it as it is said. So it will be done as it's supposed to be done. You're to do the doing with your faith by what you hear. The term post-truth is now often used to describe the current authoritative climate of the United States in which talking points, group thinking, social media opinions seem to overpower the specifics of absolute truth or people of truth. Whenever you see the word truth, if you can't put Jesus' name in there, there's something wrong. Jesus said, For I am the, I am the, I am the, you put that in ethics. Jesus said, I am the modality, I am the personhood, He is the course. He is the pathway, and I am the, no one can go to the, except by, it doesn't get any cleaner or clearer than that. That's pure, unadulterated ethics. All three of the modalities of ethics is in that one verse. That's my Jesus. He's absolute because he's the clock. Yes, Jesus, you're the clock. Yet you look like a clock. You sound like a clock. I'm able to watch you second by second. If I would look at Jesus as often as I would look at my clock going through the day, I'd be in pretty good shape. This clock runs my life and yours. And we can't even say that about our Savior. Because we have ethical problems with that verse. Modalities means everything. Every method. Pray about it. Here's our generational conclusion. Since Gen Z is the first generation to be born into a culture that shifted the modalities of absolute truth into relative truth. Now I'm going to give you a clear statement. Whenever you hear relative, relativity, think of this. I'll do it again. Since Gen Z is the first generation to be born into a culture that shifted the modalities of absolute truth into made-up truth, That's what relative truth is. It's made up by self-governed rhetoric. It's made up. They can't prove it. It's not scientific. 
It's not documented and they can't get it documented because they're not God. And they're not an important enough human being that someone is going to build a seminary around their thoughts. It's made up. And it is not worth debating whether this is a clock. When you're willing to discuss the reality of what you see, talk to me. I'm ready. But if you want to play a three-year-old game about getting a cookie and you're going to manipulate any way you possibly can to, to get that cookie, I'm not interested. How many true listeners do we have that are that clear in the way, the truth, and the life of God the Father's ethics? And then he puts a requirement at the end of those ethical positions and propositions and applications. Saying this, all of you relative thinkers, you're not getting to the Father unless you come to this absolute truth. Because truth is a person that makes me the absolute person of salvation. If you're a professor and you're a smart guy, that shouldn't be too difficult to understand. And if you don't understand it or don't want to understand it, there's a confession in that rebellion. Do you, listener, you smart ones that are listening, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the modalities of life. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is this truth that we're debating? And do you believe that he is the life, the zoe, the pathway to the living God? Do you believe this? I will tell you the consequences of those who refuse it through their made-up truth. It's called hell. Another word that has diluted itself and faded itself into the screens of our ears. The word hell. In surveys, they were asked about certain swear words, particularly the ones that were condemning God. They don't even know what hell is anymore in this generation. Because their parents, the millennials, completely disengaged from the language and terminology of traditional church. It was the generation before them, the Xers, who kind of used hell appropriately, but mostly in swear words. The generation before them, the boomers, the preachers and teachers I'm talking about, these are some of the statistics you guys are going to be getting here real soon, used hell most appropriately. And now it's just a swear word. Go to hell. Which means I'm disengaging, I'm done with you, I'm finished, go on. They don't even know what the word means. That's how our enemy works. In addition to their parents, being the millennials are the ones who disinherited their parents and the church and the cultural beliefs from the church. So now Gen Zers are this first generation that has nothing. They don't know what hell means. They don't even know what truth means. I'm doing my own little surveys with our our group of people to find out how many people know what truth is. I'm getting some pretty funky answers back. Truth is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's bottom line. We have made it into so many things. It's the wrong debate, folks. Yet it is the primary debate 
of the enemy. In closing generational ethics, the results is a self-governed pluralistic worldview. Kind of looks like this in a diagram form. Process of a pluralistic person is this train that we're looking at here. It starts with the caboose, what feels right, feeling, what feels right about me becomes feeling-based ethics, a new term that's popping up. Secondly, they go to facts, relative facts, I might say. Anything that makes them happy is going to be truth. The scientific ethics is ruling the world today. But I've been in the world of science for a very long time. And I'm telling you, it's easy to adjust science. Just like you can change numbers to make them look good. There are certain things in creation that are absolute. There are many things in science that are not. And then finally, they go for faith, this self-life faith, and that is faith in their own abilities which ends up in a pluralistic base ethics. And then the proper worldview, the process of a faith, Christ-driven person, starts out as faith. If God said it, I'm going to believe it. So that's faith in Christ within me, if I'm a born-again believer. If I'm just seeking Christ to find out if that's the route I want to go, it still works. Because you can't have it unless it's done by faith. Scripture says it very clearly many, many times, many passages. Everything has to go through faith or forget about it. Well, the enemy's got this opposite thing going. Then we go to the facts, which is the word of God for us. The absolute word of God. Bible documented facts. Absolute truth. Then the feelings support the facts. Whereas in relative thinkers, it's completely opposite. If it doesn't support their feelings, or if you make me feel bad, I'm going to disengage. That's what we're dealing with today. I want you to take a little extra time and look at this slide on the screen age broke the standardized ethics. And just very carefully look over this particular slide because the bottom line basically is is that this boundary line of ethics has already been broken by this generation and the oldest one is 19 years of age. It's already done. Ethics, true ethics have been diluted to the point of feeling-based ethics which I find extremely Weird that they're using the term ethics. So now ethics is not intellectually processing order. It is now a feeling, which means we will have millions, millions of ethical standards in the world today and tomorrow. Here's our identity matter statement for tonight. Even though I am not an advocate for self-proclaimed ethics, I do, however, support the biblical standards, crisis life worldview meta-ethics, normative ethics, and applied ethics, which has been predetermined by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Remembering, This is a belief only 3% of the Zers support, with 1% supporting a Christ-as-life worldview, which is what we are speaking of tonight. Those of you Zers who are listening, and you're of that 1%, I'm asking God to bless you and multiply you, and that he would challenge you to stand up and be a light to a very dark generation as what 
They're calling it the lost generation. We need you, 1%. Get over your tennis shoes. Get over your zombie movies. We need you to begin to proclaim this truth, which is very simple ethics. If the movement of reactionary ethics morphs itself into a single culture, the church will be facing the darkest age to date. We have a global identity crisis worldwide facing us. But if you follow the numbers from what we're getting today and then do the 15-year projection, I don't even have words to describe to you how bad things are going to be. I'm not being a doom and gloom. There's someone out there that already does a good job at that. I'm just saying, wake up. Look at life realistically. And if that's hard for you because you're a relative thinker, you're going to end up serving the Mimi gospel. You'll interpret every verse to be about you. You'll lose sight of conviction. You'll even lose sight of guilt. And you'll think that you are a non-condemner because you love everyone. But I can guarantee you the first absolute person that presses themselves upon you, hatred will erupt. I'm giving you a quote from a researcher, and I'm going to leave you with this quote. The world peace group in the world today are the most hateful people on the planet and also the most violent. Now, if that does not show you the dilemma we're in, the very ones who are pushing for world peace, if you front them with absolute truth, hatred and violence erupts. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining us in our next podcast. We're going to be talking about the effects of cyber dependency. Very interesting topic. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.